Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. Please open the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the hope to which you've called us and your incomparably great power. We pray that you would help us to see what these things mean for us, for our world. Would you equip us to live for you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do you give to the person who has everything? You might find yourself asking a question like that when, uh, when someone's birthday approaches, you know, for somebody who doesn't seem to need anything in particular. I'm sure you're aware there are, there are websites devoted to novelty gifts just for these occasions. So when flowers or a bottle of wine or socks don't quite hit the mark, uh, you might prefer a pair of golf ball-finding glasses that highlight white objects and make them easier to pick out in the long grass. Uh, You might prefer a stormtrooper decanter or an inflatable unicorn horn for your pet cat. Well, on the website, IWantOneOfThose.co.uk, you can buy all those things, but you can also, for the person who has everything, you can buy nothing. It costs £6.99. And for that, you will get a transparent plastic ball full of nothing except air molecules. The packaging says it's perfect for the person who has everything. This is the ultimate empty gesture. The blurb also points out that the transparent sphere containing nothing can also double as a Christmas bauble, proving it is possible to make something out of nothing. Well, we heard last week that Christians are people who have been given everything. Christians have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. So what can you give the Christian who has everything? In one sense, the answer is still nothing. In other religions, the answer would be different. It would be that the great spiritual quest to get to God is not yet complete. There is still more religious duty to tick off the list. And that's because in other world religions, their emphasis is always on me. What must I do to achieve spiritual perfection? And the answer might be the five pillars of Islam, or doing things to boost your karma or meditating towards nirvana. And we saw last week God's great master plan for his people and for the world. We saw that the universe is God-centred. It's centred around God and not me. That God has a plan for the world which is Christ-centred. Again, it's not about me, it's not about you. And that the way God works now in the world is church-centred. 
So the plan is not, you know, come on Christians, you need to get your religious acts together, you need to be good people and do things that will merit your place in the new heavens and the new earth. The plan that that God has revealed is, is this, it's here is Jesus and it's all about him and the plan is to gather all people and all things under him and if today you are trusting in him then that is the evidence we saw in chapter in the first half of chapter 1 that is the evidence that god chose you before the creation of the world and that he has redeemed you and forgiven you and you are included and your future is secure whose initiative is this this plan in which we get to be included it's not our initiative it's god's initiative who achieves this and makes it happen not us, but Jesus. And because Jesus has already lived and died and risen, the work that needs to happen has already happened. It's already complete. So, Christians have every spiritual blessing. There's nothing more for God to give. Everything he can give, he has given in Christ. So what can you give to the Christian who has everything? Nothing at all. Okay then, so is that it? Just trust in Jesus, go home, wait for him to come back? Is there no progress to be made? What, what about my sin? I may have every spiritual blessing in Christ, but I'm still, this side of his return, I'm still a sinner. And so Paul continues in this letter, and he tells us what he prays for the Christian who has everything. What do you pray for the Christian who has everything? Three things we see in these verses. Firstly, to know more of God. To know more of God. So look at what he says, verse 15. For this reason, he's heard about their faith and love. He's heard about the evidence of God's work in them. So he gives thanks to God for them. For all that they have in Christ. All that God has given them in Christ. It's a great place to start. There's so much to give thanks for already, if you're a Christian, for what God has given in Christ. And then he prays, verse 17, you see, for God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. Now, do you struggle sometimes to know what to pray for people and what to pray for yourself? Now, I think, of course, we know what to pray if someone has a broken leg or if somebody's going through hard times or some, something obvious about somebody's circumstances or our, or our own circumstances. But when maybe that isn't the case, what do we pray then? And actually, are those things that we pray when they're obvious, are those the most important things we could be praying? That's interesting, isn't it? There, there must have been people facing ups and downs in the church in Ephesus, just like there are in every church. But what does Paul pray for? He prays for them to know more of God. What or who will help them with that? Well, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And what is his role? It is to enable Christians to know God better, to give us wisdom, like the wisdom we heard about in Proverbs earlier in the year, if you were here. What is that wisdom? Do you remember it, if you were here? It is the fear of the Lord. It is just knowing God. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of revelation. He makes God known to us. He reveals God to us. 
That is the Holy Spirit's primary role in the Christian life, to help us to know God. Sometimes Christians wonder if they really have the Holy Spirit. Actually, the New Testament is clear. If you are a Christian, if you are simply trusting in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit. More than that, it is the Holy Spirit who has enabled you to trust in Jesus. He's like a spotlight shining on an actor on stage. Wherever the actor goes on the stage, the spotlight follows to make the actor known to the audience. Now, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one God. But each person has different roles. And Jesus is like the actor on the stage in whom we see God personally revealed. He's more than an actor, of course. He is God himself on the stage of human history. But the Holy Spirit is like the spotlight who shines on the stage and says, look at Jesus. And through Jesus, look at God the Father. But a bit like a spotlight, it's a bit odd to get obsessed with the spotlight over and against the actors on the stage. So when you go to the theatre, you're glad the spotlight is there. You wouldn't be able to see without the spotlight. But you don't spend the entire play staring at the spotlight. You look at what it's illuminating. So it's a strange thing to get obsessed with the work of the Holy Spirit in isolation from the work of Jesus and the work of God the Father. You see, every Christian is filled with the Spirit because every Christian knows Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit's job. So Paul prays that the Holy Spirit may enable these Christians to know God better. What we have left to do with all that we have in Christ, what we have left to do is to enjoy this relationship with God that Christ has won for us. You can always know God better. Now, are we serious about that? Is our prayer as Christians for ourselves and one another serious about growing in our knowledge of God? Not because we need to create that relationship, but because that relationship already exists. Maybe we need to restart or even begin for the first time that habit of spending time with God each day in his word. Sometimes helps to, to refresh things, look for a different resource. There should be a, 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 a good bookstall at the weekend away in a few weeks' time with, with things that will help on it. There, there are a couple of free apps that are worth knowing about. There's one called, appropriately, Holy Bible. Look it up. It's made by version. it's called. And it has tons of free Bible reading plans on it, and it will even read the Bible to you. It's got loads of audio, free audio Bibles on it. It's a fantastic thing to use. Uh, there's, a, there's an app also that will help you pray called Prayer Mode. Look those up if you haven't seen them before. But as we were thinking about last week, the goal of the Christian life is not just for me and God to have a one-to-one. The object... The goal of the Christian life is to be the church, to be this scale model of the future. And you can't quite see it in our translation, but it's kind of obvious if you think about it. When Paul says you in these verses, when, as he addresses you, he means you, plural, you Christians, together. I'm praying for you to know God better as a group, which is why we gather together on Sundays. 
And it's why we try and encourage every member of St. John's to be part of some kind of smaller group of Christians that meets midweek to encourage each other to keep going. Now, our small group programme is, is a key part of that, and we're going to be reshuffling those groups and giving them a new start over the next few weeks. So if you're not part of one now, either because you're new or because you've never got round to it, then watch this space and we will give you more info in the coming weeks. But maybe, you know, for whatever reason you're, you're not in an official small group because they're at the wrong time or whatever it is, find another way to be, to meet with Christians midweek. To study the Bible, to get to know God better together, maybe at work, or school, in a little informal prayer group or whatever it might be. See, Paul's one main thing to pray for the Ephesian Christians, out of all the things he could have prayed for them, is for them to know God better. Let's have that priority too. Then he develops that idea of knowledge in two further areas. One is to know more of God's hope, and then the last one is to know more of God's power. So then, secondly, to know more of God's hope. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, what is hope? What do we mean by that? It's a funny word in English, isn't it? Because if I say, I hope that one day I'll win the lottery, well, everyone knows that's very unlikely. And yet, for for many people, it remains a thing that they sort of hope for, and they still pay it in, in hope each week. But Christian hope is different. It is certain. It is secure. It's shut away in heaven where no one can get to it, to spoil it, to take it away. Quite a few years ago, we lived in Winsford in Cheshire, when I was a curate. Now, Winsford, historically, was a one-trick town. It has a salt mine, and it's still there. And once a year, when the councils realised they really should have stockpiled more rock salt for the roads, and they didn't, the TV cameras descend on Winsford to film the queues of lorries. But now, underground, there are hundreds of miles of tunnels where they've dug out the salt. And what do you do with empty tunnels underground? You use them to store top-secret documents for the government. Safe, where no one can get at them. Deep underground, nice and cool, very dry because the salt absorbs the moisture, you see. Highly secure. Now that is the kind of security that Christians have for the future. Not because of anything we have done, but because... God raised Jesus from the dead. Our future hope rests on what has already happened in the past. But our experience of it is still future. That is why Paul says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, verse 18. When people are on the edge of Christian things and maybe looking into Christian faith or wondering what it is that makes their Christian friend tick or what it is that makes their spouse different, well, they sometimes say things like this. They say, I don't really see why I need Christianity in my life because you know, I'm basically okay as I am. You know, I'm happy without it. I've got enough uh, going on. And it's great for those who need it and want it and I haven't got anything against that, but I'm fine as I am. You hear people saying that kind of thing? Maybe you feel it yourself. But actually that is slightly missing the point about what Christian faith is all about. It's not really about making life better now. It's about bringing hope in the face 
of death. Hope in the face of suffering that every human being experiences in different seasons of their lives. Hope in the face of the judgment we deserve for our sin. That is what the Christian life is really about. It's about this glorious inheritance in the saints that he speaks about in verse 18. It's not quite clear if this inheritance, if he means our inheritance, what we receive in the new heavens and the new, new earth after Jesus returns, or whether actually does he mean God's inheritance, what he receives at that point. And the extraordinary thing is, if, if that's the thought, his inheritance at that point is us. He will have us as his treasured possession. Either would fit with the message of the book and the other things the Bible says, but either way, both are future. It's not about now. It's about what's to come. Don't become a Christian because you think you'll get a better life now. It may well be worse, materially. But look at the hope that is available when you trust in Christ. Because hope changes everything. One lady who knew this was a missionary named Helen Rosevear. You may have heard her name before. She was a missionary in Africa. And she twice found herself in front of of a firing squad for being a Christian. But on both occasions, her life was spared. Now, of course, the fact that her life was spared was a, was a wonderful thing. But apparently she had been so prepared for death and so ready to go and be with Christ that it took her three months to get over not dying on each occasion. Then there was a Another story, there's a vicar called Henry Venn who was coming to the end of his life and the doctor came to him and said, I'm very sorry, there's nothing more we can do. I expect that you will die this afternoon. And it's said that he was so excited he lived for two more weeks. Now we hear those stories and I think we probably think that's a bit ridiculous, don't we? It, you know, it's true we shouldn't joke about death. It's not a happy thing. Actually, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus even though he knew he had the power to raise him from death. But maybe, actually, people like Helen Rosevear and Henry Venn were onto something. Maybe at least some of the discomfort with death that we experienced is caused by the fact that we know very little of the future hope that Paul speaks of here. If we're Christians, we've been given a secure free ticket, if you like, to an eternity with Christ. If you've been given a secure free ticket to a holiday in the Caribbean or whatever, whatever it might be, that you, your dream holiday, well, you, you, you want to find out about it. You go looking on the internet, you go reading all the brochures, you daydream about it. Yet so often our daydreams are full of anything but thoughts of eternity. Pray like Paul that our hearts would be captured afresh, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened and enlightened, so that what we would see and long for in our hearts is not the kind of day-to-day -day things that occupy our hearts and occupy our daydreams most normally, but what would occupy us would be eternity, would be that hope. That's what Paul prays for the Christian who has everything. To know more of God, to know more of God's hope, and then thirdly, to know more of God's power. 
Verses 19 and 20, if you look at them, say something extraordinary, which is that the power that is available to us who believe, which is all Christians, is the same power that was at work in raising Christ from the dead. Not, it's not just whatever power happens to be left over once he's finished with the other more important things that he's doing. But what is available to us is the same power with which he raised Christ from the dead. Now that is some power. Look at how it's described. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Picking up on some of the the language we heard in the first reading in, in, in Psalm 8, fulfilling that. But why so many words, Paul? Why why say the same thing in so many ways? Well, it'll become clear as we go through the book that there's this battle going on in the heavenly realms that we can't see but is very real. That there are spiritual forces that would prefer to see God's plan fail. But Paul is clear, it can't fail. Because Jesus is the boss. And the power that raised Jesus and made him the boss, look who it's for. The end of verse 22. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Who's it for? He placed all things under his feet. He appointed Jesus to be head over everything for... was Was it for the armies and the governments and the big corporations and the power grabbers of the world? No, it's for the church. for St. John's Downshire Hill, for you, for me. We are his body. The way God is choosing to work out his plan for the universe here and now is through the church. And that same power, therefore, that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. He wants wants us to know it more. What does that mean? Well, it means that we too can be raised from the dead, spiritually now on the inside, physically one day in the future. And like with the work of the Holy Spirit, people can get so distracted by looking for kind of small displays of God's power that we miss the big displays going on all the time around us. So when we think of God's power, we think, oh, I want to see God's power maybe in a healing or maybe in a great answer to prayer for a new job or something like that. And those are great. When When those prayers are answered, praise the Lord. But the biggest display of God's power is simply when somebody becomes a Christian and remains a Christian. When they are spiritually raised from the dead and they're kept alive in Christ forever. So are you a Christian today? Have you been a Christian for a year, for 10 years, for 50 years, 80, 90 years? That that is only true because God's power has been at work in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been keeping you. So look around us in this room. This room is full of walking miracles. Because that is what it took to raise Jesus from the dead, isn't it? To raise him to heaven, to seat him at God's right hand. It's the greatest miracle ever. And that is what it takes to raise us from spiritual death, to be with Jesus. And more than that, to keep us 
with Jesus. It's not something we can do for ourselves. We need the miracle of his power to keep us. But that is what he gives us in Christ. If you wonder some days, how can I keep going as a Christian? Can't do this, you feel. Well, you're not asked to do it in your own strength. He gives you the power of his Holy Spirit to keep you. Rest in him. So he prays, may these Christians know this power. This is what you pray for the Christian who has everything. I'm encouraged by this model prayer that Paul gives us here to think about what my priorities are as I pray for people, as I pray for our church, as I pray for my family. I'm encouraged by verse 17 that Paul says that he keeps asking this. Do you notice that? Do you you, you feel sometimes that prayer gets a bit repetitive? He keeps praying the same things over and over again. Well, Paul is saying in one sense it ought to be. Nothing wrong with that, praying the same things. Keep asking to know God better. Don't kind of move on to other things, more, you know, seemingly more exciting things. Never stop praying that prayer to know God better for ourselves, for others. Now, of course, there are other things to pray for. It's not wrong to pray for them. But it is always good to pray prayers that God, through his word, has told us to pray, that he's promised to answer. So pray to know more of God, to know more of God's hope, to know more of God's power. Let me pray that now. Father, we give you great thanks for one another for the faith and love that we see in your people around us, even this morning. And so we ask, and we want to keep asking, Heavenly Father, that you may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that we may know you better and better. Father, would we grasp more and more what is this hope to which you've called us, that you have in store, that is secure, that cannot be taken away. Would we grasp that more and more? Would that fill our hearts and our daydreams? And would we know more and more this incomparably great power for us who believe, for the church that is available to us, this power that raised Jesus from the dead, that made him the boss over everything, and is now for us. Thank you for the confidence that gives us, that your plan cannot fail. In the face of everything the world will tell us, in the face of everything our own hearts will tell us about ourselves and about our sin, and about our weakness, and about our failure. Thank you that your plan is never in doubt, and that your incomparably great power can raise us and keep us. So we pray, Father, that that power would be at work 
not just in us, but in the world around us. For those who don't know you, for those who are particularly on our hearts, I pray that anyone here this morning who knows that they do not yet know you would, would know the hope, would know this power, would have their eyes opened to the spiritual blessings in Christ that you make available to anybody who simply trusts in Jesus. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.